0: Welcome to Istoias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today, I'm here at the 2019 American Historical Association Conference in Chicago for another episode in our series on Spain and the Nazis, this time focusing on the ways that Spaniards remembered the thousands of their countrymen who lived and died at the Nazis' Mauthausen concentration camp. To do so, I'm joined by Sarah J. Brennis, an Associate Professor of Spanish at Amherst College. We'll be providing just a brief overview of the extensive material in her comprehensive book, Spaniards in Mauthausen, Representations of a Nazi Concentration Camp, 1940 to 2015, out just last year from University of Toronto Press. So Sarah, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Foster. It's great to be here with you.
0: So I thought before we move to the memory of Mauthausen, we could talk just a little bit about the history of the camp itself. So to start, I thought maybe you could tell us about a few of the basics of the camp, such as what type of camp it was, where it was located, and how it functioned.
1: Absolutely. So, Mauthausen is located in Austria, just outside of Linz, uh, just a few kilometers outside of Linz, in the town of Mauthausen, which is right along the Danube River. And the concentration camp was built, it's one of the earliest camps to be built in the Third Reich. It was built in 1938 and 1939. And it was a concentration camp, not an extermination camp, which is, a, which is an important distinction. It was also a slave labor camp. So one of its functions was to exploit the natural resources of the area, which namely are the granite quarries in that area of Austria. So the camp itself is actually built out of granite. It's a fortress. Um, It's rather imposing on a bluff above the Danube River. Mauthausen, as I said, was a slave labor camp, notorious uh, for housing political prisoners in particular, although there were also Jews who died in Mauthausen and was one of, was known among, uh, in in the Third Reich as one of the most brutal concentration camps
0: in your book. And in this episode, we're going to be focusing on the Spaniards, particularly who are in the camp. So generally speaking, who were these Spaniards who, who wound up in this camp in, uh, Austria. Where did, where do they come from and why were they there?
1: Right. This is this is important. So mm-hmm. the Spaniards were either fighters or defenders of the Spanish Republic during the Spanish Civil War. That is the you know, the democratically elected government in Spain uh, in in the thirties. Uh, when the Spanish Civil War broke out, Spaniards who would ultimately end up in Mauthausen uh, were f- either fighting on the front lines against Franco or were otherwise politically involved against the nationalists. And so when Franco won the war in 39, they, they feared for their lives staying in Spain, and they exiled en masse to France. There were hundreds of thousands of Spaniards who, who fled across the border. The Spaniards who would end up in Mauthausen were, almost without exception, interned in French camps along the southern beaches of France. They were essentially migratory camps, uh, detention facilities, and they were incredibly inhospitable, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine. So in part because these Spaniards were already committed to fighting fascism, which they'd done in Spain during the Civil War, and also because they were trying to escape the conditions in the internment camp, many of them either volunteered or were coerced into joining the war effort in France. They were sent to the Maginot Line, they fought uh, with the resistance forces, And so then when France fell to the Nazis, they were uh, captured and sent to Stalags, the German prisoner of war camps. In that Franco considered them enemy combatants, when the German authorities reached out to the Spanish authorities to say, hey, what what do you want us to do with these Spaniards in our prisoner of war camps? Franco simply didn't reply. They were of no importance to him. And that omission sent them to the concentration camps. They were deported from the POW camps to the concentration camps. And the majority, although Spaniards were in concentration camps throughout the Reich, the Third Reich, the majority ended up in Mounthausen.
0: So, so we can actually say that in some sense Franco was responsible for them winding up in these camps because he, they almost became stateless citizens.
1: Franco was absolutely responsible uh-huh. for them winding up in the camps.
0: I, I also thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about the experience of living in Maltazena, and I, I know this is a this is a huge subject. You could you could write a whole book, and and you emphasize in your book how varied that experience could be, but I thought you could just tell us a little bit about what made uh, Mauthausen unique or, or particularly notorious compared to the other camps that we might be familiar with.
1: Sure, and there are a couple of different things that make Mauthausen unique, and one of them is that the Mauthausen complex is actually made up of some 60 sub-camps. So, it's actually a sprawling complex. Uh, there's the main camp at Mauthausen, the one I described as the granite fortress. But then there were a number of subcamps that were associated with different work commandos or different slave labor operations throughout Austria. Uh, some, of, some of the subcamps, such as Gusen, Gusen 1, 2, and 3, Ebensee Hartheim Castle, was actually one of the earliest T4 killing centers in the Nazi operations. And some of these subcamps were even more brutal than the main Nazi, the main Mauthausen camp complex itself. And for the Spaniards, the majority of them actually died in Gusen, where the conditions were, there, there was very little food. It was a, an absolutely brutal slave labor operation, and they were sent there simply to die in, in the course of, of their labors. Um, and they also died of disease or starvation. And, and, of course, they were also killed by SS officers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things that's actually really interesting about Mount is that it's not just one place it's many places and and they had different functions and operations but all of them saw Spaniards and and all of them saw these essentially killing uh, killing operations and the other thing that's worth mentioning about Mount and the Spaniards is just the variety as you mentioned the variety of experiences that Spaniards had in the camp because some of them died very soon after they got there they were forced to work in the quarries they were pushed off the ledge for, you know, perceived infractions off uh, this notorious parachutes ledge, is what they, what, what they called it, by the, by the SS. And so they were, there were some that were particularly vulnerable in the, in the early parts of the war. But other Spaniards actually managed to find very privileged positions inside the Mauthausen camp complex, which is to say that they were able to work inside and they were able to get slightly better rations and they were able to survive the four years five years of imprisonment until the end of the war so the the variety of experiences that the Spaniards had really ran a gamut of the lowest of the low who were who would die really within weeks of arriving at the camp and those who actually managed to to situate themselves in a more protected space and were able to survive.
0: But overall the the majority of the Spaniards who entered the camp never made it out alive.
1: No, that's right. And and the numbers, you know, speak for themselves. There were the estimates are that about seventy two hundred Spaniards were uh, deported to Mauthausen. This is the, the majority, as I said, about only about ten thousand Spaniards were deported throughout the concentration camps. In Nazi Germany and and its territories, but um, the majority ended up in Mauthausen. And of those 7,200, estimates are that about 67 percent, so the majority, died in Mauthausen. Mm-hmm. There were about 2,100, 2,200 survivors, many of whom then died soon after the end of the war as well from various infections and 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 starvation-related causes uh, that they'd suffered in the camps. But but really, the majority did die in Mauthausen. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, wow, mm-hmm. it's chilling to, yeah. to think about. So we're going to take a short pause here, and then we'll start to look at the way in which this uh, these experiences in the camp were remembered by the, the survivors even during the Franco regime back in Spain. back. Now that we've established a bit of the history of Mount Towson, uh, let's take a look at how the representations of this history evolved over time in Spain. You write about how some of the prisoners in Mount especially in these more privileged positions, were actually able to try and document what was going on in the camp while they were still inside. So could you tell us about how they were able to do this?
1: Sure, and, and this is really part of the f- most fascinating part of the Spani- Spanish population in Mautazen. And part of the reason that we have so much documentation about Mautazen is due to the Spaniards who, as you said, had privileged positions and were able to document what was happening. So a few examples. Two Spanish-Catalan prisoners, actually, Juan de Diego and Casimir Clement. Uh, Because of their, they were trilingual actually Spanish, Catalan, and German, they were assigned to the Gestapo offices, essentially managing the camp. They were scribes, but in their position in these offices, they were able to keep duplicate lists of the incoming prisoners. Clandestinely, they did this absolutely in secret because they would have been killed if they, these operations had been discovered. So they wrote du- duplicate lists of incoming Spanish uh, prisoners in particular and were able to document additional information that the Nazis weren't keeping, such as you know their town of origin back in Spain, birthdays, uh, additional information that decades later would actually allow some family members to identify their relatives who died... Uh, in Mauthausen. and uh, Clement and De Diego both survived the, the war in the Gestapo offices, given that that protection. And were able to smuggle out those lists with the help of American forces, actually, Mm -hmm. at the end of the war. So their role was really incredibly influential in, in documenting what happened in Mauthausen, and in particular to the Spaniards. On the other end of those operations of documentation are the Spaniards and Catalans who are working in the photography laboratory in Mauthausen. There are three in particular, and, and two of them have become rather well-known. One is Antoni Garcia, and the other, who is now something of a folk hero in Spain, is Francesc Bois. Between the two of them, and there's some disagreement about who had more responsibility in, in keeping duplicate photographs, but they were able to keep additional sets of photographs and negatives. Of the, the pictures that the SS photographers were taking of the camps, the pictures included you know, visits of high-ranking Nazi officials, such as Heinrich Himmler, mm-hmm. to the camp, as well as pictures of SS officers at, in their leisure hours and of prisoners in various states of detention and even images of bodies and people who were killed in the camps. Those pictures and those negatives, with the help of some other Spanish prisoners who were in the camp, they smuggled them out, hid them with a member of the French resistance who lived in the town of Mauthausen, and were able to recover them after the war. And they've they've persisted, they've survived as a body of photographic evidence, probably the most complete body of photography we have from any of the Nazi concentration camps that really illustrate the inner workings Bosch took some of those photographs to Nuremberg he was the only Spaniard to testify in the Nuremberg trials and so he did actually use that as as legal evidence to inculpate not high-ranking Nazi officers.
0: Mm-hmm well it's incredible bravery that they were able to do that and and actually have a tangible effect of the of the work that they yeah, did yeah and it bears it
1: bears pointing out that they were risking their lives to 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 carry out that kind of documentation
0: yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. We have this work going on inside the camp, this documentation coming out of it, but even as the second world war uh ended, we still have a arguably fascist dictatorship inside of Spain, the Franco regime. Did that regime allow any of this news to get back into the country?
1: What's interesting is that for, on, on the whole, they did not. The, in, in daily Spanish newspapers, in magazines, in, in, in publishing in Spain in the 1940s and early 1950s, there's very little mention of the Holocaust uh, or the concentration camps at that point was not called the Holocaust, and no mention of Spaniards in these camps, with one exception. And that is the series of articles that one Mauthausen survivor, whose name is Rod- uh, Carlos Rodriguez de Risco was able to publish in the Franco regime's own newspaper, the Falangist newspaper Arriba, in 1946. And... Through this series of articles, uh, Rodriguez Arrisco tells his story of what he calls his adventure in Mauthausen. He is able to give a great level of detail about the camps. But the articles, as I said, appeared in the regime's newspaper and are anti-Semitic apologists. He's an apologist for Franco and for Hitler, essentially saying that Hitler was not uh, to blame for the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And so they're an incredible series of articles that prove that there was actually information about about Spaniards in the camps in the Spanish press but in in the subsequent years after the publication of these articles they they essentially disappeared they they were forgotten and very little after that appeared in the Spanish press again as you said because of Franco's the, the Franco regime and their control over over what was published in Spain?
0: Do you have any notion of why they allowed this account to be published? Because it is kind of surprising. I,
1: I have. I have. I've been able to speculate. There's very little out there that gives us any context uh, about these articles, but I I found them in the National Library in Spain. Um, the actual newsprint copies. And what was startling was that when I found the newsprint copies, the series entries that actually were the most anti-Semitic or that discussed this idea that Hitler was not responsible for the extermination of of the Jews were not included in the newsprint copies in the Biblioteca Nacional in, Hmm. in Madrid. I found them in the microfiche. And so my suspicion is that it may have been either an editorial hand that that asked Rodriguez del Risco to include this. There may have been some deal struck to to keep him uh, from any kind of reprisals for his he was a he fought for the Republic when he was in Spain right or he may have had some kind of political conversion while he was in the concentration camp. It happened to other concentration camp prisoners that they somehow in in some strange kind of perverse fashion Decided that that you know other pr- prisoners were responsible for their own murders essentially under the Nazi regime. So it's not clear what exactly happened, mm-hmm. but it's some combination of that of those forces.
0: Yeah, and and I think you mentioned that there was actually kind of a conversion narrative mm-hmm. inside of that story that mirrored the the national Catholic ideology of the time. So there is there sense.
1: is it's fascinating through through the series of of articles you can kind of see this. Notion that he began as a Spanish Republican but ended up as a Franco supporter, and and perhaps that's why he was he was able to publish this in the in inside Spain.
0: So you have only this very small bit of news coming um, into Spain. Mm-hmm. But were there any accounts of this concentration camp experience being published uh, outside of Spain in uh, amongst the exiles?
1: There were. Uh, there absolutely were, and uh, that's where you see the 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 richest accounts of what was going on. Um, in Mauthausen among the survivors. And they published some memoirs in France, in the, it, it, mostly in the 60s. They also were contributing to the newsletters that the survivor group, the Amicale de Mauthausen, which was a group of French and Spanish survivors of Mauthausen, formed in France. Um, so there's a bulletin uh, sort of the internal newsletter for this group that many Spaniards contributed to. And we, we kind of see some of this information trickling back to Spain by the mid-60s, when, for instance, there's a novel, Que Reich, that's published by Joaquim Amat Piniella, a Catalan man, who was a survivor of Mauthausen. He wrote this novel in which he doesn't actually mention the word Mauthausen, which is perhaps how he was able to publish it in mm-hmm. Spain. But it's clearly about, it's a novel about uh, the prisoner population in Mauthausen as he was a Mauthausen survivor himself. So you start to see a few a few publications trickle back into Spain as the, the regime loosens its grip on the press and publication efforts back in, on, uh, in the country.
0: Moving into the 1970s, at the end of the regime and then after, after Franco died in 75, the, the press restrictions were loosened. So did these accounts that started to come in actually form part of the re- resistance against the regime since these were Republican prisoners who, who were there?
1: Yeah, it's hard to call them a, a form of resistance because really the story cracked open after Franco's death. And and the person who, who broke the story of Spaniards in, in the camps was Montserrat Roche, who was a Spanish journalist, a Catalan journalist, and novelist um, in Barcelona, who started interviewing survivors in the mid-70s, in the early 70s, before Franco died. Uh, she, she, her bravery is also to be commended because she was working under the Franco regime, contacting these exiled uh, Mauthausen survivors and, and survivors of other camps in France and, and collecting their testimony, which she then published in 1977 as Els Catalans als Camps Nazis, which is Catalans in Nazi camps and is really the, the groundbreaking tome of oral history of Spanish and Catalan survivors of the camps. The survivors themselves won't start publishing their memoirs in Spain until actually a couple decades later. So Montserrat Rocha's work really was, uh, between, between her articles in some Catalan newspapers um, and magazines, and the book, as well as there are a few other survivors, Mariano Constante was a prolific writer in, in Spain in the 1970s, writing. He wrote three or four books about his experiences in Mauthausen and appeared on TV in Spain. So the story does become then more well-known mm-hmm. in Spain, back uh, especially after Franco's death.
0: And I think what's interesting about this book is that it focuses on the survivors who were Catalan, was part of the purpose behind that. Mauthausen as a formative experience of, of Catalan identity.
1: Absolutely, and there's, once Roche received some pushback from other Spaniards who had been in the camp that why was she focusing on Catalans, but she was a Catalan journalist, journalist who was absolutely interested in Catalan identity. She published the book in Catalan originally, so it, it is interesting to think about that because there was no, you know, there was no uh, separatist movement afoot in, certainly not in the 40s and mm-hmm. certainly not during Franco's era, uh, the Franco regime. So this was sort of a formative uh, moment for Catalan identity. The majority... Among the, the population of Mauthausen prisoners, uh, the majority were Catalan. And that's also because many Catalans joined the, joined the fight against Franco during the Civil War. And so it's kind of interesting to see that thread of Catalan identity, um, because really that's the first place you start to see stories about Mauthausen survivors, is in Catalonia and in Catalan.
0: So we'll take another pause here, and then um, we'll take a look at the way this memory continued to um, evolve as we come into the period of democracy uh, in Spain. I thought as we move into uh, more recent history, once the democracy developed in Spain, then this idea of collective memory of the Spanish Civil War, especially in the past 20 years, has emerged as um, a subject of intense interest uh, in debate inside the country. How has this memory debate influenced remembrances of the Spaniards who were inside Mauthausen?
1: That's a really good question, Foster. Um, I would categorize it as kind of a contingent effect on World War II because... The emphasis still in Spain is really on the Spanish Civil War and the memories, the historical memory of the Spanish Civil War. But as this period of sort of what, what has been called recuperating historical memory in Spain has kind of exploded, the memories of the Spaniards at Bauthausen has has kind of joined the um, movement. And to a lesser extent, but um, by the the mid-90s, Starting in about 1995, uh, Spanish Mauthausen survivors began to publish their own memoirs. Um, and there was a, a mini boom of Spaniards, uh, these Spanish survivors, who wrote in very, sort of published in very small presses. Some of them were, were really not available outside small regions in Spain, and some were even just published by the survivors themselves with uh, the intention of distributing them to their families. But there were, there were over two dozen mem- memoirs of Spanish Mauthausen survivors. And that does start to have an impact on what people know and how they start to learn about their countrymen and women who were in concentration camps. So that, and then uh, we can talk a bit more. But in the last decade, in particular, some of this movement during the Spanish Civil War, for instance, to disinter mass graves, etc., and to commemorate Spanish Civil War victims, has also had an effect on the Mauthausen survivors and. Even in the last few years, there have been um, various efforts, mainly regionally and smaller groups, because the Spanish government has never actually taken any responsibility for deporting Spaniards to Mauthausen. But there have been small efforts to commemorate the Mauthausen survivors um, in in different parts of Spain.
0: I think it was interesting you said starting in 19, around 1995, you really have this kind of upwelling of these different memoirs because I know that previously you had this pact of silence in Spain where people, they didn't want to talk about the Civil War because it would bring up these kind of old tensions that they were trying to uh, avoid. So it makes sense that once that period passed, then people really started to... Talking about. And America. it's interesting.
1: It was, it's an organic, uh, what happened was organic because there wasn't actually some, some thing that happened right, in 1995 that, you know, somebody didn't say, okay, the pact is over, but, but it's true that I think in the case of the, of the Spanish survivors of concentration camps, there was still a concern that, that the democracy was not solid enough in Spain mm-hmm. that they might still uh, be held accountable for, you know, what was considered for a long time under Franco, their, their, treason, essentially, to the Spanish nation. So um, I think it, it took a good amount of time for Spanish survivors of Mauthausen to feel like they were able to tell their stories and, and wouldn't uh, you know, be put in jail or be su- otherwise have to suffer from repri- reprisals. There are some who even, who even said in their memoirs, I didn't think anyone was going to believe this story. I didn't write this down because I I imagined that people simply wouldn't believe it. And you can understand why they would say that. There was nothing in the Spanish press for decades about what happened to these men and women who were deported to the camps. And again, as the Spanish government never admitted any kind of uh, collusion or any kind of culpability in this deportation, there was no evidence really out there to support what they were talking about as their own experiences.
0: And I I imagine another factor was just that as people got older they realized that this was kind of their last chance to to tell their story
1: right and this is incredibly important because if you think about um holocaust studies in other in other countries in europe in particular the movement to record testimony the movement to commemorate and to understand what has happened has really moved very quickly in the certainly in the from really the 1980s through to today and that process has not happened in spain so the idea that these these survivors who are now in there are only probably a handful of, of Mauthausen survivors who are still alive in Spain, that there still has been no centralized effort to collect their testimony or to you know commemorate them as, as a group, which is really, well, it was part of the impetus for this book, uh, for me, but is also, I've, I think, sort of a grave um, d- injustice to them.
0: So now, as these survivors begin to pass away, what what we're left with is commemorations by people who didn't actually experience the the concentration camp, and so you introduce in your book this idea of, uh, of post-memory that people don't directly re- remember it, but they are re- remembering it, you might say. Um, so what are kind of the differences between the, the representations from, the, from this next generation, and I wonder if you could also give us a, a couple of, exa- of examples of what these more recent remembrances are looking like.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. And it's interesting because there's there's sort of two kinds of ways that, that once the survivors are gone that this story is, is being remembered. And one is by family members. And the idea of post memory is actually related to how family members are are impacted by the trauma that, mm-hmm. that their you know their great uncles or their grandparents went through. But then there are also people who have no family connection to a Mauthausen survivor who have been writing or filming representations of this story. And and they and up being somewhat different the the difference is their fidelity to history really their how the, how they demonstrate what happened and in some cases, dehistoricize what happened or glorify what happened. So some examples, there's a lot out there right now. There are graphic novels, there's a play, there are films now, and some are, are in my opinion, more accurate than others. And one I'll mention that is actually a play is called El Triángulo Azul, the, the Blue Triangle, which is the the insignia that the Spaniards in Mauthausen were forced to wear. This is a play by Mariano Llorente and Laila Ripoll, who are Catalan and playwrights, um, and it's actually a, a striking representation because it's almost a vaudeville show. It includes music and tarthuelas and other traditional forms of of dance. Um, so, in one in one sense, it it um, it could perhaps be perceived as kind of diminishing the experiences of the Mauthausen survivors, but in another sense, it actually takes a fairly sensitive tact toward the story of the Mauthausen survivors and, and prisoners. It represents the story that I told before about Boisch, who saved the photographs, and some other stories about individuals that are actually based on the historical record that we, that we have, embellished for a dramatic purpose, but fairly historically accurate, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have some other um, representations, including a, a graphic novel that somewhat glorifies. Um, this one is called a *Prisoner in Mauthausen*, um, and a Twitter account, which I've found very fascinating because it's a way of bringing this story into new media. It has a mixed. I have a, a mixed reception of the Twitter account. It's called *Deportado 4443*. Uh, which you can still find active on Twitter. And it's the uh, story of one Mauthausen survivor no longer alive, Antonio Hernandez, as written by his nephew and as imagined by his nephew. Mm-hmm. As uh, Antonio Hernandez never wrote his own memoir, um, and he died in the 90s. So his nephew, who's a Spanish journalist, has kind of resurrected this figure as though he were on Twitter tweeting from inside Mauthausen about his experiences. And on the one hand, it's quite impactful for a new generation of people in Spain and out of Spain interested in this history. It's a way of really reaching out to folks who might not read a historical work mm-hmm. about Mauthausen. But on the other hand, it certainly dehistoricizes the experiences. Obviously, no one could actually tell their story from inside a concentration camp in this level of detail. No one could keep a diary in Mauthausen in this way. And so it has it has those mixed effects And a lot of the new representations of Mauthausen, either by relatives or by interested others, toe this line between telling the real story and embellishing.
0: So just to kind of conclude our program, I was wondering if you had any final thoughts about, as we move definitively into kind of this post-memory stage, what you would look for or what we need to be aware of in terms of these representations, because I think it's very important that we continue to commemorate the experience in Mauthausen, but how we should go about doing that.
1: Absolutely, and that's an important thing to think about, as you said, as, as the survivors themselves are gone, um, and it's something that people have grappled with in Holocaust studies. It makes me think of the three-dimensional uh, figures that are now appearing, Holocaust survivors at museums in the United mm-hmm. States, how to keep the story alive when the people who can tell the story are no longer alive. And my feeling about it is that, you know, I, I come from a field of cultural studies, so I still think think that these representations are important the novels the films even the Twitter account. It's, there are ways to reach people who might not be reading a historical book. But I'm absolutely a protector of the idea that as much as you, your interest is piqued in this topic by a book or a novel or you know a film, that it's important to return to what actually happened. It's important to return to the historical work that's actually been published about Mounthausen because the whole story is not contained in a, a creative work. Um, and I think for the legacy of the Spaniards who were killed in, in the concentration camps, really for the legacy of the Holocaust, it's important that we not lose sight of that that historical record. It's great to get new audiences attracted to the story or just interested in the story. It keeps it alive. But um, having that grounding in what actually happened is also incredibly important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the program, Sarah. I think this has been not only a fascinating story, but one that's very relevant to us today as as we think about how we should remember these events from the, from the mid-20th century. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Foster. It was a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.